kids, where they transition to a different aspect of their life and a different aspect of their spiritual walk. And a lot of times those are not happy and smooth transitions, are they? I, I don't know about you, but college was not always smooth. In fact, there were probably more rough stops than smooth spots in terms of relationships and in terms of classes and not studying enough, of course. I didn't study enough, and I wish I had. But it's easy in those situations to be hurt and frustrated and to kind of say, this isn't going like I thought it was going to go. And and it's important in those times that we don't get damaged, that we don't let the emotional uh, fallout of interpersonal conflict kind of hit us. Because not only can it affect us emotionally, but it also can stunt our faith and it can stunt our desire for the Lord. I went to a Christian college and saw that even in many of the people that were around me who maybe had not been raised uh, in a strong Christian influence. And when pressure hit and when a spiritual attack hit, they fell back. Or when a relationship went sour or something happened in their lives that was unexpected, they, they collapsed under the weight of it. Now, I'm pretty confident that these three that were up here aren't going to do that, but we never know, right? And we have to be careful, even as mature believers, even as older believers, that we don't allow conflict and, and difficulty and challenge to disintegrate our walk. One of the things that I love about the Bible, and especially about the book of Acts, is how very candid it is in describing relationships and in describing conflict as it really happened. You know, some people have said that the Bible is just a fairy tale, that, that the, the authors came up with it after the fact, and they kind of made it seem idealized, that there was this religion that was just kind of all happy, and of course God solves all your problems, and, and everybody's great. But I, I find it's very strange that if that's true, that the writers made themselves look so bad all the time. Because the Bible is not sugar-coated. It's very raw in terms of what actually happens. And just in the book of Acts, we see disagreements with authorities. We see discipline of people who lied to God. We see criticism of the faith of the believers. We see Saul being confronted for his opposition to Christ. We see Peter questioning God's evangelistic methods. We see a public debate about theology. And that's just in the first 14 chapters. And then we get to chapter 15, and right at the end, we see this very strong dispute. And I don't use that word lightly. That's probably not a strong enough word. There's this strong dispute over uh, personnel and over ministry philosophy. There's nothing romanticized about what happens at the end of chapter 15. But through it all, we see and relate to the humanness of the early church. And we see how they learn to yield to the Holy Spirit because this is still something that they're growing into. They had walked three years with Christ. They didn't really ever get it when they were with Christ. Then Christ died and resurrected. Then the light started to come on. And he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And once the Holy Spirit really came upon them, then they really got it. But it's still a learning curve here of what it's like to follow the Holy Spirit and what it's like to yield to God's direction. We even saw that in chapter 10 with Peter. We see it now in chapter 15 with this dispute. But God, through it all, is unwavering in his faithfulness. 
And we're going to see this morning how he can use even conflict to expand the reach of the gospel and the work of ministry. So you're probably already there, but if not, take your Bible, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 15 this morning. We're just going to look at the last 12 verses of this chapter, starting in verse 30. Now, if you want to review, last week we uh, studied what we call the Jerusalem Council, which was where um, Paul and Barnabas took a lead role in stopping this progression of thought that the Gentiles had to adhere to the rituals of the law, specifically in terms of circumcision. And we established that there was far too much debate about this because, A, it was so clear that that's not what God wanted them to do, and, B, because the apostles had in some ways backed down in fear of what the Jews would think. And they had kind of capitulated a little bit in terms of their uh, the firmness of their doctrine. So when the Jews came along and said, well, yeah, absolutely, the Gentiles need to be circumcised too, you don't see the apostles really stepping up. You see Paul stepping up. And that was a little bit, again, of a shift, because after 15, we don't see Peter anymore. So really, this is the transition chapter where it moves from the apostles to Paul. And Paul now takes the ministry to the Gentiles. Now, this was not the first or last time that they had this kind of conflict. In fact, we won't turn, but in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes that when Peter came to Antioch, he strongly confronted him about the fact that when the Gentiles were around, Peter would have dinner with them. But when the Jews came around, Peter would disassociate himself. He would back off a little bit. He would kind of act, the the scripture really kind of says it this way, he would be a snob. He would say, well, oh, the Gentiles, oh, we can't hang out with them because he was fearful of offending the Jews by having dinner with the Gentiles because the Jews still didn't accept the Gentiles. You get where I'm going? So, So Paul gets up in his face in Galatians 2. He describes it and he says, listen, you're wrong. You're, you're out of fellowship. You, you actually are guilty of, of something that you shouldn't be doing because you are treating them arrogantly. You're acting like that Jews are superior. You haven't heard what God said. You remember the rooftop at Cornelius' house? Do you remember that God said the Gentiles are now accepted with the Jews, that the gospel goes to all? Listen, the Jews have had 3,000 years to hear the gospel. They don't want it. We're going to the Gentiles now. And this is a major dispute. I mean, we don't even see Peter responding. That's how vehement Paul was. I mean, I think, I think history shows that Paul was kind of a, a short guy, not very attractive, not, not much to him. And I always imagine, and I don't have any proof of this, I always imagine Peter was like this big strapping dude. I mean, he was a fisherman. That doesn't just mean, that, that's big old nets, right? I mean, Peter was, Peter was not a small guy. So you can just imagine little Paul coming up and getting in Peter's face. Hey, you're doing the wrong thing. But that's what it was. That's, that's exactly what happened here. The division was great. But there was a need for clear explanation of the gospel. There was a need again and again and again to clearly say to everybody, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether as a Jew you're offended by that or not, it does not matter because the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Now, Paul was the leader in that. And if you look back in the middle of chapter 15, 
James affirms that in his little speech that he gives. And he makes the suggestion that even though the Gentiles were not bound to the rituals of law, which we established in the first part, and for that matter, at this point, the Jews aren't bound to the law, they're bound to Christ. But he says, they're not bound to the law, but, but let me make a suggestion. Let's encourage them to abstain from anything that is offered to idols because of Christ. They should abstain from anything that, that is corrupted by sin, and they should refrain from eating certain types of meat. Now, there are two reasons for that. One is, is that it would publicly affirm to the people that were around the Gentiles that they no longer lived like they used to because we know the Gentile culture, the Greek culture, was that they'd have statues of idols and they'd have temples to idols and that would be what they would worship. Well, James is saying, hey, Gentiles, show your separation from that culture that you grew up in and, and abstain from things that are even offered as a sacrifice to idols because that will prove that you're following Christ. And the second result of this will be that you will then connect with the Jews because you'll show unity with us since we're struggling, to be very honest with you, we're struggling to accept you. This will show unity with us that you are part of the body of Christ. It's a great speech that he gives there in the middle of chapter 15. But his point is, more than anything, more than what you present to the Gentiles that are around you and more than how you unify with us, this will be the great evidence that you have put your salvation in Christ alone because the greatest evidence that you have put your, sal your faith in the salvation of Christ alone is that you live a holy life. There is nothing that will prove to people more that we really love the Lord and that we have really trusted in the Lord than we live a holy life. It's the whole point of the book of James. You want to show me your faith? Show me holiness. You want to prove that you really love the Lord? Then show it by how you live. See, holiness is the undeniable outgrowth of faith. Holiness is what is expected of a believer. Not trying to do good, not I'm trying to obey the Bible and I'm doing my best. No, that's, that's not where God has us. God says, you are holy to me. I have declared you to be holy. Now I want you to live holy. We're called to be sanctified. We're called to be set apart unto holiness in our hearts and our minds and our actions. That means there are no other choices. We're not allowed at this point, not because God has said, well, here's my demand, but because this is the outgrowth of our faith. We're, we're not allowed to allow sin. We're not allowed to embrace sin. We're not allowed to include sin as part of our life. And that's indicative that the old nature, the one that's corrupt, the one that's filled with sin, doesn't control us anymore. It's been replaced by a new nature. And the new nature is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's led by the Holy Spirit, and it's maintained by the Holy Spirit. And he gives us a new mind and a new heart and a new spirit, which means we have new priorities. It means we have new uh, requirements of ourselves because we have to constantly kind of encourage ourselves and say to ourselves, don't look at that, don't go after that, don't desire that, don't fall into that. I mean, you have to give yourself some sermons during the week, right? You have to give yourself some sermons during the week. Because yes, the Holy Spirit convicts, and yes, the Holy Spirit's there, but we 
can even, as strong believers, tune him out once in a while when we don't want to listen, just like a teenager does, right? I don't feel like listening to you anymore. But we do that. The Holy Spirit convicts and we say, yeah, it's, it's good. But yeah, no. So we have to talk to ourselves. I, I'm not advocating being crazy here. I'm just saying we have to do this. You have to give yourself some sermons and say, come on. Just like Paul does with Timothy in 2 Timothy. Come on, Timothy. Remember your gift. Remember the calling God's given you. Stir up that desire. Stir up that fire. Stoke it back up. When you're dragging Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when something's happened, when a family member's been rude, when a boss has not treated you well, when you're discouraged, when you're ill, you have to give yourself that sermon. You have to get back in the Word and say, come on, let's get that fire going again. i got to stoke myself back up. Because it is so important, the Bible says, not even to have the appearance of evil in our lives. Think about that. Think about your life. Think about Christianity as a whole and where we have gone. We are not supposed to have even the appearance of evil in our lives. And James says in verses 28 and 29, we're going to read in a minute, this is not just the reshaping of the law. This is the expected response to God's grace our lives. We need to be careful of the concept of grace. Listen carefully now. Because God pours it out so liberally. But the fact that God pours it out so liberally doesn't mean we get to do anything we want. That's creating too much license for ourselves. We have to make sure that our response to God's grace is not too much liberality. Our response to God's grace and being freed from sin is to completely disassociate from sin and to commit ourselves to holy living rather than looking for loopholes on how we can still enjoy a little bit of the sense of the past while living as believers. We have to be careful that that doesn't give us license to do what we want. And that's the message, really, uh, and you can read it later, that's the message that they send with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. They say, go back and tell these Gentiles as you offset the false teaching of Gentile circumcision, as you go back to them, tell them, watch your rear flank. Make sure you don't misappropriate. Just because you're not under the restrictions of the law like we've been, doesn't mean you can go to the other extreme and misappropriate God's grace. Make sure you watch your back. Now, they go back a third time. That was a long introduction. That's about half the sermon right there. All right? They go back there a third time. They go back to encourage and strengthen the body. They don't go back with nice, soft words. It's not fluffy. It says in the text that they preached a long message. And they get strong truth out to ingrain it in their hearts and minds. Let's see what happens next. Chapter 15, start in verse 30. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. Having gathered the congregation, they delivered the letter. That's the letter that tells them this is how you're supposed to live. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. There's a reason. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, verse 35, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Everything's great till we get to verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, the work in Antioch was important because of the effect that the gospel had had there. And the city at this point, Acts chapter 15, had really become a harbor for the faith. There was no discernible tide against the gospel. There was nothing that was pushing back. They weren't facing strong resistance. And this really had not only become the launching place for faith and evangelism, but it was also a place of training and and spiritual uh, restocking, so to speak. You remember when we chose the name for this church, when God led us to the name for this church, that the concept of a harbor was that what we're doing this morning is we're restocking so we can go back out into the sea and do the work. So that's what Antioch had become. It had become a place of, of refreshing and restocking and teaching and training so that people could go take the gospel out into the world and, and, and teach people about Jesus Christ. Now, after spending a long time there, helping the believers mature in their faith, Paul especially starts to feel the need to get back out into the sea. And he says, we've got to go back out and we've got to go back to the places where we were before and visit them and find out what's going on. How have they been doing? What, how, how are they progressing in their faith? Sometimes it's much easier, isn't it, to stay in the comfort of the harbor. It's easier to just stay in the place where we get fed and restocked and we're with everybody we know when, you know, the... We go out into the sea and there's the winds of opposition and there's the pushback of, of controversy and there's the tide of opinion that's, that's pouring in against us and we have to work against it. But how many know this morning that the reward is not sitting at the dock? You don't, you don't get fulfillment from serving the Lord by sitting on the dock day after day with the fishing poles. That's not the reward. The reward is training and preparing because God gives us opportunities to go out and to minister to people. Listen, this harbor is just the place to get refreshed and refilled so we can do the work. And Paul says, I'm ready to get back to the areas where things aren't so safe and easy. Because in the places where things are safe and easy, complacency takes hold. And I don't think there was anything that aggravated Paul more than spiritual complacency. So he says, Barnabas, we've got to get back out there. The believers in those places, they're still facing the influence of the culture. They're still fighting that. And and, and there are false teachers, and we know that. They've come into some of the churches we've established, and they're changing the truth. And we've got to get out there and and check up on them. This is more than a social call. This is more than, hey, let's go visit and stay in the Hampton Inn and and go to church, and, and it'll be great. We'll have a little lunch, and we'll go. No, they're going to make a spiritual checkup. Has the faith taken root in your hearts? How Are you progressing? Are you standing firm? Are you influencing people for Christ? Are you actively walking in truth? Now, it makes sense that he says to Barnabas, come with me. 
Barnabas had helped establish these churches. He knew the people. They knew him. They would have an open door to go in and minister to the believers. But then we see this surprising conflict. This this rub that's there that that just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's not what we would expect. It would make sense that they take someone to assist in the work of ministry, someone that can can help them out and kind of do some of the legwork of the ministry and minister to them and encourage them and and be a a person in training that can see what the ministry is all about. And we don't know if they decided to take somebody before verse 37, but we know when we get to verse 37 that Barnabas says, hey, I got an idea. We should take John Mark. And everything comes crashing down. Hey, Paul, I got a great idea. Let's let's take John Mark with us on this trip, and, and he'll help us, and it'll be wonderful. Now, you may remember John Mark, chapter 13, verse 13. He had gone with them on the first missionary journey, but when they got to Asia Minor, early on in the trip, remember on the map, they went from Antioch over to Cyprus. They went all the way across the island of Cyprus, and then they went back up into Asia Minor, and they landed in Pamphylia. Well, when they get to Asia Minor which is what is now Greece and Turkey, when they get there, John Mark says, I'm out of here. I'm going back to Jerusalem, and and I'm done. Now, there are a lot of theories on why he did that. Some people have speculated that he was scared. Some people think that he was just homesick. Other people say that he was unhappy that Paul had taken the lead role in the team because up to chapter 13, it was Barnabas and Paul, and then it shifts in the writing, and it's called Paul and Barnabas. And from chapter 13 on, it's Paul and Barnabas. Well, he was Barnabas's cousin, so maybe he was frustrated. Why, Bar- oh, uh, you know, Cousin Barnabas, why aren't you in the lead? Why are you letting this guy take, take the first place in all this? So we don't know why, but while all those things are possible, it is a fact that he left right after he got to Asia Minor. And he did not go back to Antioch. He went straight to Jerusalem, which indicates that the reason that he was probably leaving the team was that he was uncomfortable with the gospel going to the Gentiles. And he didn't want to continue with the ministry. Spiritual immaturity and and feeling sad that he wasn't home and concerned that that Barnabas wasn't leading, those are legitimate reasons. I doubt they would have been enough that Paul would have said, said, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Are you kidding me? He ran home because he was homesick. I don't think Paul would have reacted that strongly. But if he said, I'm not supporting of the ministry going to the Gentiles, I can absolutely guarantee you Paul would have said, that's enough. You're done. I don't want to be... Don't, don't be with us, because if you're not supporting this, you can't come along. So we get to chapter 15, and Barnabas says, great idea, Let, let's, let's take John Mark. It may have been due to his family connection, or maybe he thought it'll be a good experience. Paul, if he could see how the Gentiles are responding, he would get it, and, and he would come around. But notice the text, look at it in verse 38. It says, Paul kept insisting... The Spirit adds the extra emphasis. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him. Why? Because he had deserted the ministry. The phrase there represents the fact that it was repetitive, that Paul kept saying, "Uh uh-uh, well, we should take him. No. Well, he's my cousin. No. Well, he'll come around. No. He's not going with us. And I'll tell you why he's not going with us. 
The phrase literally is, he's not worthy of the ministry because he stood aloof and turned away from the work. That's literally what the phrase means in the Greek. He looked at it, and he stood off to the side, and he was arrogant. Who, how dare he be arrogant with us? And he looked at it, and he said, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm turning back. And Paul said, I can understand being homesick. I can understand that, that, that Barnabas isn't leading. I get that, your family. But listen, if you're not going to be supportive of the work of ministry, then I don't want you. See, there were selfish overtones to what was going on in Mark's life. And it wasn't good. Paul says he's got the wrong mindset to ministry. Because for Paul, there was too much at stake for timid ministers. Remember what he says to Timothy? Those of you that have been have a study of the Bible class, you've studied this passage well. He says, listen, Timothy, you better get your act together. You better stop crying and telling me how hard it is. God did not give us a spirit of timidity. He gave us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And you have a calling, and you better exercise that calling, and you better get busy. I'm not going to sit here and massage your feelings. I'm not going to sit here and tell you how hard it is. I'm in jail. I'm about to die. Don't talk to me about hard. Now, John Mark, if you can't get behind this, if you can't be for the Gentiles, then we don't want you. Now, it's interesting on Mother's Day to see the nature of this conflict because Paul and Barnabas are are essentially acting like parents in how they argue about John Mark. Barnabas is trying to nurture. Barnabas is is trying to give some latitude to John Mark to grow up. He's saying to Paul, let's have a little patience. Now, that's his inclination. That's his personality because he was an encourager. So he says, come on, Paul. Really, you're being a little harsh here. Come on, this is my cousin. Don't come around. Just, I mean, you hear the conversation? Let Listen, I, I encourage you. Let's bring him. It'll be great. And Paul is being protective of the gospel. He, he's looking for any way to advance it. That fits with his laser-like focus on his calling to ministry. Both of them are correct in their intentions, and the Spirit doesn't detail for us that that they were in sin or out of line in any way, but each of them had a little bit of a blind spot in the way they were thinking. You ever had one of those disagreements in your marriage or parenting where you're overcorrecting, you're being too harsh, or you're undercorrecting, you're being too soft, and you can't see the other person's point of view and perspective, and it creates conflict. Anybody else ever had a, 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 an argument like that in your marriage? Yeah, you have. Come on. Teenagers love to leverage that, don't they? Oh, mom and dad don't agree. <laughs> I think teenagers cackle like that behind our backs. <laughs> I see weakness. <laughs> Let's see, who's the soft one today? I'm going to go to them. I'm not going to go to the harsh one because they're going to ground me. (laughs) As you know, because you and I have experienced that, right? When we don't see the other person's perspective and we put our feet in the sand and say, this is how it is going to be, 
that escalates very quickly. And it turns from a difference of opinion and a difference of parenting to a hostile battle without a whole lot of effort. And that fits the word that the Spirit uses here in verse 39 when he says there was a sharp disagreement. It literally means there was passionate contention. And it was so sharp that neither Paul or Barnabas was willing to back down. Now, conflicts like that can be very unhappy and they can do a world of damage, whether it's in a marriage or in a family or in a church. Marriage is a separate issue, and I hope this summer to do a series on relationships that will address some of that. But in terms of the church, what I have found through the years is that most conflicts in churches are based on selfish agendas, not on how the leading of the Holy Spirit is directing us to make our ministry more solid and reach more people for Christ. You will hear very few conflicts in church of how can we best serve the Lord? What you will hear in churches is conflicts over what I want. Very rarely do we walk that narrow road of obedience and discernment so carefully that we're fine with the Spirit and the dispute comes from just a slight movement of His plan. Instead, we argue over petty things and we divide the body when we want our way and we believe that we should go in a direction that the Holy Spirit hasn't sanctioned. I am thankful to the Lord that hasn't happened here and I pray it never does. But I'm telling you, that's what divides churches. And those kinds of conflicts do damage, especially if we then go to the next step and start talking to people about how we feel. Now, how do we prevent that? Because we've got to get to some practical application here. How do we prevent that? Because we know we're going to have disagreements, and we know we're going to have differences of opinion, whether it's about philosophy or theology or how to do ministry or whatever. So what steps can we take to mitigate against that division and injury to the body? Well, there are some spiritual principles that come out of this. Maybe write them down this morning because you're listening almost too well. But there are some spiritual principles that we learn out of this situation that can help us fight against the damage of conflict because there will be conflict. First of all, we always have to speak truth to each other. And we should never shy away from defending God's word. But we are always to speak truth in love. It's one thing to speak truth and say, well, this is what it is, and this is how it's going to be, and this is what God's word said. It's another to say it in love. There are times when we get dogmatic. I even do it when I'm preaching, and I get home and I think, I was too harsh today. Please understand, it's not a desire to be harsh. It's a desire to be dogmatic. But sometimes when we're dogmatic, our tone comes across as kind of condescending or mean, even if we don't intend it that way. And that can do damage to the message if we're not careful. Now, knowing how intelligent and how passionate and how fervent Paul and Barnabas were, I think it would have been real interesting to hear this conversation. To hear them talk about John Mark, because the text seems to suggest that those conversations had some bite to them. Listen, for our words to be effective, especially in this culture, which is so, um, so hesitant and so hyper-focused on every word that comes out of a Christian's mouth, for our words to be effective, they have to be tempered by love 
without ever compromising the truth. And that is a delicate balance that only the Holy Spirit can teach us. It is in my temperament to be harsh sometimes, to be strong sometimes, to raise my voice, to be impatient. I'm telling you all my faults, okay? This is like public confession. It is in my temperament to be the one who reacts. But that has to be tempered by love. And the only way that can happen is not for me to say, I think I should be more loving today. I think I'll temper down my words. It's to say, Holy Spirit of God, you have given me a new nature. I don't want to live like my old nature, including times that I get stressed and impatient and frustrated and speak too loudly. Calm that down in me. May love reign, but never let me compromise the truth. Number two, we should always have an attitude of humility. We should always have an attitude of humility. That's based on the grace of God in our lives, but it's also based on the fact that we might be wrong in our opinion. I know that's a shock. I know some of us, once in a while, not often, but once in a while, I just might, might, I say, be wrong. Just occasionally. Or all the time. We have to be humble. Thank you, Sue. We have to... We have to, that's one of those amens you don't want. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh-huh. I know. I. Our words, our attitude has to be humble. Now, Paul and Barnabas both thought they were right. And neither one backed down because they both may have been right. They also both may have been wrong. It's interesting, again, second time in chapter 15, that there's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of them saying, you know what? We disagree on this. We should call on the Lord and ask the Spirit for guidance. He's always told us what to do. So let's ask God. There is not a single mention of prayer. It's just an argument. And it's interesting. I wonder, and I, I have to believe this is partly true, that that. There's pride in play, and they're both defensive, and they're kind of sitting their ways, and they have their arms crossed, and they're arguing with each other, and giving their opinion, and raising their hands, and talking like this. Listen, when you're in an argument, you think you're right. Humility is the last posture you want to take, but it is incredible how when we say, Lord, right now, oh, I'm fighting it. Humble me. God will change the tenor of that discussion, and you'll get the resolution. How often, when we're in an argument or conflict, do we say, God, humble me? No, we usually say, God, change that person because they're wrong. How could they think like that? I mean, really? God, do you listen to this person? Instead of that, say, Lord, humble me. Humble me. Change my heart. If I'm being stubborn and proud and defiant, if I'm sticking my feet in the sand, humble me, even if it means I have to say I'm sorry. Humble me. Because humility changes the course of the conversation. Third, we should yield when the issue is not vital. We should yield when the issue is not vital or when it's not about serving the Lord more faithfully and effectively. We can kind of infer from reading the text that Barnabas probably thought Paul was kind of calloused and insensitive, and Paul 
thought Barnabas was kind of soft and not really committed to the ministry. You think those are fair assessments from the text? Do you think that's, that's realistic? The fact is, Paul had an incredible capacity for empathy and encouragement. If you read Philippians 4, you read first, uh, 2 Timothy 1, you read the book of Philemon, you know that Paul's heart was soft, he loved people, he was torn apart when people abandoned the gospel, he, he wanted to nurture and encourage and strengthen people, he challenged them, but he did so with love, because he understood people, and he understood their pain, and he was concerned that every one of us will know the strength and sufficiency of the Lord. Paul was not calloused, he was determined. And Barnabas had a powerful ministry of personal and spiritual encouragement. He had helped people to mature in their faith and to stand strong for the Lord. His commitment to the ministry was was sure. You can see it from the first missionary trip. He was humble and sacrificial for the work of the gospel. So knowing that about them, why are they fighting? See, pride has such an ability to distort reality and to change our thinking toward each other when we know better. And if we leave that unchecked, it does damage. There is no indication from Scripture that this relationship, after chapter 15, verse 41, was ever fully restored. And that's tragic. If they had stopped and called on the Lord and yielded to each other and not dug their feet in so tightly, even if they had just acquiesced a little bit in terms of their position, it would have all been different. And sometimes you and I have to concede in what is non-essential in order to preserve the peace. If you don't believe that about your marriage, you haven't been paying attention. And I'm not saying I'm good at it. You can ask my wife. I'm saying that is what we need to do. When we're arguing non-essentials, let's not get so stubborn about it. You want to argue doctrine? You're not going to move me one bit. I'll argue with you all day long. But, but you talk to me about the color of carpet, who cares? Just yield. Just yield. Is it really? I, I ask people when they come in for counseling and they're fighting and I'm going, I can't believe these people are arguing about this. And I think, well, I do the same thing. But I say to them, I say to them what's the end game here? What are you trying to win? Well, I... That's good. That was very intelligent. Don't, don't, just don't. Yield. Fourth, we should always remember the message and purpose of the gospel. Here's where Paul was strongly dogmatic, and I understand his point. I think it's valid. Whether John Mark was timid or lazy or resistant to Gentiles or whatever, he ultimately did not have a good excuse for not continuing in his faith and his use of his gifts. And that's what frustrated Paul so much because he was so determined about the gospel that he needed to be free of doubt with the person that he was laboring with. And he didn't want to get bogged down and have another incident where they got to Asia Minor and John Mark said again, I'm out of here. So he saves himself the trouble. You know, Proverbs 25, 19 says, confidence in an unfaithful man in times of trouble is like a broken tooth or an unsteady foot, which will hardly be used. Paul says, I don't want John Mark because I can't trust him to finish the work. And Barnabas, that may seem harsh, but the work is serious and lives are on the line. So here's the message to us. 
If you're part of the ministry, and every believer in this church should be part of the ministry in some way, if you're part of the ministry, then be a person that can be counted on to work hard and be full of joy and see the point of what we're doing. And I praise the Lord that you are. But as we grow, as we expand, as more people come in, we have to model that. Look, this has been a hard work, but we're going to do it with joy, and we know what God's doing, and we get what this church is about, and we're going to labor for the Lord. And we're not going to complain and look back and say, oh, no, we're going to stay steady. I think that's why God shows us, look, even despite the conflict, I use this. Look back at verse 17. Let's look at one more thought and we'll pray. When they can't resolve the issue, I'm sorry, I said verse 17, I was wrong. Verse 39, verse 40, verse 41. When they can't resolve the issue, they agree to separate. Barnabas says, well, I think I'm right, so I'm taking John Mark. And Paul looks around and he sees Silas, who really had no intention or no preparation for this type of work. And he says, I want you to go with me. Now, the destination where Barnabas and John Mark go is very interesting because it says they go back to Cyprus. Cyprus was Barnabas's home. So going back there, listen now, was safe and comfortable for them. It also meant that John Mark, again, wouldn't have to go to Asia Minor for whatever reason he didn't want to go there. And it's interesting, too, that the Spirit excludes any details of the nature of their work. So we don't know what they did. It just says Paul, Barnabas took John Mark and he went to Cyprus. And that's all we see. It seems to indicate that they took a less challenging path of ministry and chose what was more predictable and what was more easy. Now, look at what happens with Paul. It says he chose Silas and he left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The Spirit's detail, just in those three words, stands in contrast to the other two because it shows they had a specific purpose for the trip, which is what they had established in verse 36. Let's go check on the believers. And the scope of this trip right here, starting in verse 40, is absolutely significant. If you guys have the map, if you would put it up for a minute. This is small, I know, but let me just show you where they go. They start here in Antioch. They go over to Tarsus, which was Paul's home. They go all the way up here around, all the way down, back down through here, over to Corinth, over to Ephesus, back down, all the way back to Caesarea and Jerusalem. On this trip, they cover 17 cities. Now, John, Mark, and Barnabas went here to here. That's all they did, right there, out on that island in the middle of the ocean. And yet, now Paul goes through with Silas and they completely transform the whole area. They go to churches. They, excuse me. They go to the towns of Philippi. Let me show you where that is. They go to Philippi right here. They go to Corinth right here. They go to Ephesus right here. Over here is Colossae. They don't go there on this trip. Over here is Thessalonica. They don't go on that trip. But you recognize those names, right? Because in these places, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus... They set up churches. And those churches become the proving grounds for for where the ministry will advance. And along the way, they're put in jail, but they see God's hand of help. 
And the jailer and his family get saved. That's in the next chapter. They have an opportunity to speak to thousands of people in Athens. And Paul gets two very clear visions for the Lord. There was nothing safe and comfortable about that trip. But they knew the effect of the work was great. Barnabas and John Mark, back home. Let's go to Cyprus. Let's hang out. Spirit doesn't tell us anything about their work. But Paul and Silas go, and they do ministry. Now, that's not, please hear me, that's not to denigrate what Barnabas and John Mark did. But do you see the difference of putting the Lord first and then stepping out in faith to do the work he's called us to do? For three years and four chapters of Acts, the trip is detailed, not to mention the third trip they would take later. But we don't see Barnabas and John Mark mentioned again in Scripture. Other than a few verses in the later letters where Paul says, John Mark actually has now become useful for ministry. But we have no details how that happened. So for the next three chapters, we're going to see Paul going everywhere, doing ministry, setting up churches, getting visions, having the work of the Lord done. We see Barnabas and John Mark, not at all. And what's powerful is that even with that division, Look at the last verse, we're done. The Lord uses it to expand the work. Many countries, many cities get the gospel. People trust in Christ. Churches are formed. We get letters from Paul to those churches that make up the New Testament. More and more people are trained to serve in ministry, including John Mark. Silas becomes a co-worker in ministry. The enemy tried to derail the work through conflict, but the Lord had other plans. When we put ourselves in God's hands... He will always use us to do a powerful work to draw others to Christ. So here's the bottom line question. Which path would you have taken? Would you have said, well, let's just go back and and do the safe thing and and just kind of do what's not really challenging? Or would you have sensed the presence of the Lord and said, we're going to go, we're going to do the work. This is going to be hard, but God's going to be in it. Which path? The Lord does seem to favor one over the other. So the question for you and I, Are we going to step out in faith? Are we going to put Lord first? Are we going to say, well, this is what I need to do? Let's bow our heads. I want to encourage you and challenge you right now to let God's word just sink into your heart. You've listened so well. I'm so grateful to you. But I do believe God's challenging us. Listen, you guys have stepped out in faith in amazing ways with this church. You have been so faithful in terms of your ministry. But I think we have all sensed that God has some fresh work ahead for us. Are we willing to be the ones who step out again in faith and say, Lord, where do you want to take us? What do you want us to do? We're not going to fall back into what is safe and comfortable. We're going to follow your hand. Sometimes that will be easy and wonderful. Sometimes it will be a huge challenge. But we are going to follow you. In my marriage, in my family, Lord, I'm going to be the one who steps out. I'm going to be the one who defends you. Maybe your family members are not believers at all. And it's a constant battle for you. No, I'm going to keep stepping out. The Lord is faithful and the Lord is sufficient and the Spirit of God is empowering us to serve Him. 
He would never leave us without resources. So I don't know what it is for your life this morning, what God may be calling you to do and to step out in, but whatever it is, I would encourage you and exhort you, follow him. And even if there's conflict and dispute, know that God could even use that, but make sure your heart's humble. Make sure your heart's right before him. Father, there is so much for us to digest from your word, and we've just scratched the surface. But I pray right now that your spirit would give each of us clarity. That whatever you have exhorted us to do in our own hearts and minds this morning, Lord, that we would listen to it and yield to it and follow it. Lord, as we've said for months, whatever you're calling this church to do, wherever you want us to be, however you want us to minister to this community, we will do it. Just show us. Because, Lord, at the end of the day, we want to be able to know that we were faithful to you, faithful to your calling, faithful to the ministry you've asked us to do. Lord, where there is conflict this morning in this body, I pray you would remove it. Where there is conflict in families this morning, between husband and wife, between parent and child, Lord, that we would take the steps you have shown us this morning and we would resolve that conflict because it's not honoring to you May we show the love and mercy that you have shown us to each other. Speaking the truth in love. Lord, I pray if there's a marriage struggling right now in this body, that you would resolve it. I thank you for what you've done in so many marriages in this body. Father, protect our children. All the influences that are around them that would drag at their minds, we ask you to protect them and make us parents who would really teach them the ways of the Lord. Lord, so many things we depend on you for this morning. We could pray for hours just asking you for help. So Lord, please help us. Guide and direct our paths and we will be faithful to you until you return. We pray this in Jesus' name.